0: Amen, amen. Matthew chapter 14, page 685 is where we're going to be. So over Christmas break, uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to take our three sons to their first ever NFL game, um, which was awesome. It kind of stunk because it was a Titans game, but uh, we we got a call on a Saturday night and some of our friends that have tickets, they said, hey, we've got tickets to the game tomorrow for you and your boys and we'd love to give them to you, 50-yard line, fifth row, We've got a parking pass. I mean, you can park right by the stadium. And just this kind of amazing experience. We're like, "Thank you, Lord, for showing your favor upon us." And so we told the boys, "Hey, we're going to an NFL game. We're going to see the Titans tomorrow." So we loaded up the car, went downtown, and they walked in. And they'd never, they'd never been in a setting that big. I don't think you know that many people, that many just crazy drunks. You know, they're they're there, kind of in in the in the moment, eating their forty-one dollar hot dogs and wearing their fifty dollar Titan hats. And we're like five rows from the players and you can hear them talking on the sidelines, so we're earmuffing our kids, you know, because they're using some adult language, and we're just taking in all the sights and sounds of the glorious game called football. So we're, we're there, and about 10 minutes into the game, Micah, who is my oldest son, he's five years old, uh, he looked at me and said, hey, Dad, when do we get to go down on the field and play? And I thought, how sweet, you know, God bless you, right? And, uh, you know you weigh 36 pounds and we will have to literally mop you off the field if you go down there and I don't weigh much more than you so they'll have to mop me off the field as well and I'm trying to explain to him that we've just come to watch the game and there is this clear shift in his demeanor like something changes and I realize that in his mind he cannot understand why this huge group of adults would pay all this money to come and watch just a few other adults play the game he's like wait what you're telling me like we don't need to play the game? I'm like, no, we came to watch the game. That's what adults do, and we do it very well. And he's like, we came to watch these guys? Yeah, we came to watch. I'm trying to explain it to him. And I go, do you remember being a kid when, you know, you were a kid? You lived to play, right? And if someone gave you the choice between spectating or participating, watching or playing, what would you choose every time? Choose to play. If someone said, do you want to watch an epic firework display? Or do you want to shoot a Roman candle? I want to shoot a Roman candle. If, do, do, you, do you want to watch someone play the game of football? Or do you want to play? you say, I don't want to play. Because when you're a kid, you live to play. You know, if you have kids, you know that this is true. My, my little boys will come in every morning around 530, and they'll pull us out of bed. They'll have their lightsabers, and like, you ready to battle? Like, you, you, you you're ready to play? And from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed, they exist to participate. But isn't it true that when you get older, something in in us changes? You know, you fail enough? You get picked last for the football team enough? You get told that because of your race or your gender or your background that you can't play here? And have you ever noticed that there's something about growing up that turns us from participants to spectators, from from players to watchers and your your whole life you and I we're we're being taught these subtle messages that hey in this metaphorical arena this is a place you can play and this is a place you can watch and you're figuring this out in the context of your relationships and your friend groups and your work in the midst of your decision making and I would argue that this way of thinking has smuggled its way into the kingdom of God and has greatly distorted the way that we view church And sometimes without even meaning to, we find ourselves in a place like this sitting in these comfortable, nice white plastic chairs and we begin dividing lines that because of certain things or certain things, these are the people that can play and these are the people that can watch. And if I just had one goal for our our time together in in 2016, I think about all the things that I hope God would raise to the surface in 2016. I hope that every man, woman, and child, regardless of the color of your skin, your gender, your background, whether you've been a follower of Jesus for 50 years or a follower of Jesus for 15 minutes, my prayer is that every one of us would find our place in the kingdom of God to play. That you'd find your place to play. That you know in the kingdom of God, here in the context of ethos, everyone gets to play. And what do I mean by everyone? I mean, everyone gets to play. And this morning, I want us to talk about just kind of the stretch and the strain that takes place in our life when we move from sitting in the bleachers to to getting in the field. Because sometimes my, my fear is that in church, we put on the jersey, we know the songs, we know the scores, we know the players, we know the stories, we sit in the stands and we cheer. We never come in with any expectation that God might touch you on the shoulder today and rearrange your life for his glory and your joy. That in theory, the most dangerous place in the world to go should be a church. The most dangerous thing in the world to do should be to open the Bible because there's something about following Jesus that will ruin your life, but I would argue you should try it anyways. Because Jesus takes our plans for life and he turns them upside down and he give us, gives us the life that we were meant for that we didn't even know how to ask for in the first place. And this morning, I wanna talk about the glorious and yet painful journey of moving from watching to playing, from spectating to participating, from the, field, from the stands to the field because you and I were created to get grass stains on the jersey. We were created to get our nose bloodied in the kingdom of God. And I want us to look at this larger-than-life story out of Matthew chapter 14, because I believe this larger-than-life story has several just kind of everyday principles that will change the way that you and I live tomorrow if, if we will let it. And so we're going to start Matthew 14. Jesus has just had this incredible day of ministry with his disciples, some of his closest friends. They're tired. He's going to send them to the other side of the lake. Jesus is going to spend kind of a day just having a personal retreat with his heavenly Father. And this is where the story picks up, Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. It says, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of them to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up onto a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there all alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because of the wind that was against it. Verse 25, but shortly before dawn, it was probably four or five in the morning, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, I know we're in church and we read stories, but I go, let's read this again. I want you to hear this. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. I mean, just this crazy moment in the story. I go, have you ever tried to do this before? How'd it go? (laughs) Do you realize how impossible this is? And I know he's the son of God in flesh, but what an amazing moment. He didn't need an Uber. He didn't, he, 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 didn't, he didn't book a plane. He didn't need another boat. He literally begins walking on top of the water. Amazing story. Some of you have heard it too many times to be amazed about it. Verse 26, it says, but when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, said Jesus. I hey, Come play. Come get some grass stains on the jersey. Like, like, get down here. Come on. You weren't meant to just watch as he says, come, verse 29. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water. So now we don't just have Jesus, the Son of God, walking on the water, but we have Peter walking on the water with him, and he came towards Jesus, verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, and he caught him. He said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, truly you are the Son of God. This is the Word of God out of Matthew chapter 14, this larger-than-life story that I think is chock-full of everyday principles that I want you to notice as we move from watching the kingdom of God to playing in the kingdom of God. And so I want you to notice this first principle that unfolds in verse 25. It's the principle of vision. I want you to notice where the story starts, why Peter finds himself kind of swept up into this miraculous, over-the-top, amazing moment, because all of a sudden, he catches a fresh vision of Jesus. I don't know if you think about this often, but every one of our lives are driven by vision, whether we know that or choose that, whether that's intentional or accidental, your life is arranged around your vision for what you think life should best be suited for. And so the reality is the things that you do, the way that you work, the places that you go, the way you spend your money and your time are all an output or an effect of your vision for life and the vision that you think is meaningful. The question is not if we live our life based upon a vision. The question is, who is casting the vision upon which your life is based upon? Where's your vision come from? Have you ever noticed that what your eyes are fixed upon your heart will hunger for. And what your heart hungers for, your feet will follow. What your eyes are fixed upon, your heart will hunger for. And what your heart hungers for, your, your life will follow. Your feet will follow. So you think about the way that this works. If, if you fix your sights upon the American dream, comfort and safety and security and wealth, have you ever noticed that all of a sudden your heart begins to hunger for those things? And it doesn't matter if your house or your apartment is perfectly suited for you. You go and you visit your friends who just got a new, bigger, better house and all of a sudden you feel lesser than and you begin to hunger for that. Man, what what if? What if we were there, what if we were where they are? Have you ever noticed the way when you fix your eyes, your heart hungers and when your heart hungers, you begin making decisions around that let's take it into another realm have have you noticed that when you fix your eyes upon things that are not of God your heart begins to hunger for them and you chase after that some of you have had lifelong battles with lust and pornography and this is a safe place if you've ever had that struggle but have you ever noticed that the rhythm of your life you fix your eyes upon those things and then your heart begins to hunger for those things and how often your actions begin to follow what your eyes have been set upon, and your heart has been cultivated for. The question is not if you have a vision driving your life. The question is who's setting the vision. And I want you to notice the the, the place where this story begins. Jesus has told the disciples, hey, get in the boat, go where I want you to go. And because they have obeyed Jesus, because they found themselves in the place with the posture in the context of this story, that place and posture is a 17-foot-long fishing boat bumping across the Sea of Galilee. But because they find themselves in the place where Jesus told them to be, they are posturing themselves for the vision of Jesus that they're meant to have. And I go, as we come into this year together, as as we come into this season together, have you postured yourself in the places in which you can receive a fresh vision of who Jesus is? Do you posture yourself in the morning? Do you posture yourself in the community? Do you posture yourself in such a way that Jesus can give you the vision? So the, kind of the first principle that you see unfolding here in Matthew 14 is this, this principle of vision. But I love the way that it keeps going because it doesn't stop with vision. It then leads to permission, kind of the second principle is this principle of permission. Peter looks out on the water and he goes, okay, I think that's you, Lord. Like, I'm pretty sure that's you, Jesus. I can't tell. And so he asks, he says, hey, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come to you. I go, have you ever been in one of these moments in life where where you look out on the water of your life and you go, I think that's you, Lord. I think you're calling me. I, I think you're calling me to take that job, I think you're calling me to step into that new neighborhood. I think you're calling me into this relationship. I think you're calling me to this act of service. I think you're calling me, Lord, but I'm not sure. Have you ever been in one of those moments where your vision of Jesus was blurry at best? The disciples are here in the boat. Jesus is out across the water. It is dark. There is mist. The sun is just starting to come up. They can't tell if it's Jesus or not. So Peter does the only thing he knows to do. He yells out, hey, Jesus, if that's you, would you give me permission to come to you? And this is so important. I hope you hear this because I think de- depending on your story, we will find ourselves on both sides of this story right here in this moment. But Peter is going to understand that Jesus' life was his invitation, but Jesus' voice was the confirmation. I'll say that again. You may want to tweet that. That's pretty good, um, <laughs> JK. But seriously, hear this. Hear this. Jesus' life was the invitation. Whose idea was it for Peter to get out of the boat and walk on the water? Was that Jesus' idea? No, it's Peter's. But Peter saw Jesus on the water and Peter understood the essence of discipleship was not just about thinking rightly or singing rightly or listening rightly, but discipleship was about being where your master was and he looks out and he realizes his master is not in the boat and all of a sudden Peter goes, what am I doing in the boat if you're out there, Jesus? And I think some of us, we spend our whole lives waiting around for Jesus to call us to do something that his life has already given us the permission to do. And we deceive ourselves going, man, if only God would call me, I would do it. But until then, I'll do what he wants. I'll just do what I want to do. And Peter understood that Jesus' life was the invitation. But Jesus' voice would be the confirmation. Because sometimes in our eagerness, sometimes in our zeal, we jump out of the wrong side of the boat and we find ourselves swimming in the midst of our kind of foolish decisions. Have you ever done that? and gone, man, God's calling me to do this. And you jump out of the boat and you go, no, he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, he wasn't. Oops. <laughs> and you see this principle of vision. You see this principle of permission. You see this principle of movement. Maybe the hardest point in the whole story for me. There's this moment, verse 28 and 29, Peter yells to Jesus, hey, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And, and Jesus gives him one word that had to terrify him. He says, hey, come. Come play. I go, have you ever prayed a prayer that you were scared God would answer? <laughs> have you ever asked God for something that you didn't really mean? Like, I can't tell you how many times I've prayed those fake prayers as if I could deceive the Lord, you know, but uh, he, 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 Lord, hey, if that's you, tell me to Come. Tell me to get out of the boat. Tell tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, hey, come on, buddy. Come play. And I wish we had more of the story here. I I wonder how long Peter was in the boat wrestling with, okay, guys, what do you think Jesus meant by the word come? (laughs) Can we look that up in the Greek? Anybody have a commentary in the boat? Okay, do you think the word was metaphorical or literal? I wonder what that scene would have been like where Peter is there and he raises his foot over the boat and he like taps the top of the water to see if it would hold him like a kid testing out a tree house he just built. You know, like, okay, let's try the other foot. And he puts both feet on the other side of the boat and he's testing it out. Can you imagine that scene? He then holds onto the boat and he's... <laughs> what would it have been like? And then he's like, oh this is epic. (laughs) Starts walking in Jesus. In order for you to go from where you are to where God meant for you to be, got to take a step. There's a place where your intellectual faith cannot carry you. There's a place where belief must become action or else it will cease to be belief. And the scariest part of the journey, as we move from the stands to the field, is the moment of movement, where Jesus says, take a step. Have you ever noticed that the hardest step of faith is that one step right in front of you that you can't seem the courage to take, get the courage to take right now? The hardest step of faith is always the step that's right in front of you. It's the way it unfolds. And you see this principle of vision. You see this principle of permission. You see this principle of movement. And maybe kind of the most unpopular part of the story is then you see this principle of failure. Failure. Now, the story's not gonna go the, the, the way that we expect it to go. Remember, like, you know, this is a Bible story, and up until this point, the disciples, every time they've done what Jesus has told them to do, they've experienced, on some level, crazy success. They've seen God do amazing things, and so if you don't know the way that this story unfolds, in your mind, it's like, okay, Jesus tells Peter to come out on the water, The way that the story should have gone is that Peter runs on the water, then the other 11 jump out of the boat and run on the water, and then they turn around and they burn the boat down on top of the water and they run to the shore because now they don't just heal the sick and raise the dead, but they walk on water. But that's not the way the story goes. How's the story go? Peter gets out of the boat and he walks for a distance. We're not sure how far he walks, but we know he walks long enough that when he falls through the water, His first option is to grab Jesus' hand, not the boat. And so he had experienced a a large amount of success. And he's out on top of the water, and then he falls through the water. And all of a sudden, all of the shame and all of the embarrassment of doing what Jesus asked you to do and going in a way that you didn't want it to go. Have you ever been there before? Where you do what Jesus asked you to do, and man, it feels like a whole lot of failure. And all of a sudden, Peter is under the water. He is raising his hand. Jesus, 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 Jesus. I want you to hear this so important, though. Being faithful does not protect you from real failure. In fact, I would argue that the Bible makes it clear that being faithful often brings you to places of real failure. That failure doesn't ruin our faith. It actually is the birthplace of our faith. Because it's there at the end of your strength, it's there at the end of your resources, it's there at the end of your personality and your charisma and your good looks and your success. It's at the end of yourself that the hand of God plunges down into the waters of our failure and he raises us to the surface and you and I begin walking with Jesus in brand new ways. And sometimes in our attempt to to protect ourselves from failure, we're actually protecting ourselves from Jesus. And there's this moment where Peter is learning the hard way, that when you have a vision of the Lord, when you hear his permission to come, when you take a step of faith, so often you'll find yourself neck deep in real failure. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but I wonder what the journey back to the boat would have been like. You know, when I I was a kid, I would read this story. Look back at verse 31 and 32. It says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. He said, you have little faith, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. I, I would read that part of the story, and I would just imagine Peter sinking in the water, and then instantly they were just like teleported back to the boat. I don't know why I do that with the Bible, but I just, I don't think about the story, but I go, they were some distance from the boat. What was the journey like as they went back to it? They were still on top of the water. Did Jesus carry Peter on top of the water? Did Jesus hold his hand step by step? And he's like, hey, listen, bro. When we get back to the boat, all of your buddies, they are going to roast you. They all saw you get out of the boat. They saw you fall. But Thomas is a doubter. We know what happens to Judas, most of the other guys. They won't even remember their names. Don't worry about them. What would that journey have been like back to the boat? I don't know, but I know Jesus is in it. And Jesus was there. And it brings us to the fifth principle. It's a principle of worship and this hit me all week long, is that there are two kinds of worshipers in the boat. There are the 11, those who are dry, those are, who are there in their comfort and in the joy of the boat that have just seen God do something amazing. And verse 32 says, when they saw what had happened, they praised Jesus saying, you are the son of God. You had 11 guys who were dry You had 11 guys who were comfortable. You had 11 guys who were safe. And then you had Peter who was soaking wet and a little bit embarrassed, sitting in the boat worshiping Jesus. And here's the choice that we have ethos. I wholeheartedly believe that you can worship Jesus as a spectator or you can worship him as a participant in both ways of worship honor God. But only one kind of worship is any fun. You can worship Jesus with dry clothes, but who in the world wants to do that? Who wants to worship him from the, from the stands? When you're made to worship him on top of the water, we were meant to be water walkers, dead raisers, sick healers, kingdom bringers. And Peter is getting to experience what every one of them was, was made for. He found himself in this unbelievable place. Of worship, you know, one of the things that is very convicting to me—I don't ever, I don't ever want to stand up here and preach a sermon that I'm not trying to live into. Um, you know, I am not a professional speech giver. Um, I don't want to give Christian speeches and then all of us leave and go to Olive Garden and do whatever it is that we're planning to do for the rest of the week. You know, um, this is not just a shot of spiritual adrenaline that we do on Sundays. This is a group of real people in real time saying, Lord, how do we put our lives before you and, and walk with you, right? That's what, that's what we're doing. Like, this isn't just the part of the day where a guy gets up and gives a professional talk. You know, and so my wife and I, we've been wrestling with this and I've really struggled with whether or not to share this, but I want to share it with you because I want you to understand how this story is playing out in my life in like real time and in the real struggle of this. You know, I'm 34 years old and uh, I'm reminded every day of just how little I know when it comes to the things of God, the kingdom of God. And it's like every year I grow, and I look back and go, "Man, I can't believe I said that or taught that." Or I was like, "Wow, you know, you just you just keep growing with the Lord." And one of the things that Sydney and I believe—that's my wife—is that our job is not to to stand up at ethos and give great talks about what it used to be like when people would play in the kingdom of God. But our job is to be people who are still playing, who are who are still being formed, who are still being stretched. And so I will just kind of tell you one example of this in, in our life and. Uh, The example I'm sharing with you, I hesitate because I don't believe it's prescriptive for Christianity. And what I mean is, what I'm getting ready to share, I don't think that this is everybody's calling. I don't think that this is what it means to be a Christian. I'm not putting us up on display. But it is descriptive because I want to describe to you how it is that God has been calling us out of our metaphorical boat. Because it's easy to sit here and listen about the story and then just go about your life. So here's kind of a story for you. About two years ago, it's December two years ago. Um, amos allen who's a part of this church family he and his wife go to the nine o'clock just dear friends of ours and uh, just a mentor like a big brother in the faith to me amos and i talk on the phone a lot uh, great leader here at ethos he calls me and i'm I'm pumping gas over off of the corner of nolensville and old hickory and amos said hey god put something on my heart for you uh, a while ago ann and i've been praying about this we don't know what to do with it but we sense that it's from the lord and i'm going to share it with you it's okay he said, we sense that what God longs to do in ethos can only happen if you and your family start spending some considerable time outside of the country. I'm like, okay, that's weird. Like, you know, that's not what I was expecting him to say on the phone, but that's what he said. And he said, all right, Amos, thanks, man. I go back to drinking, whatever it is. No. Um, I'm like, thanks, thanks for sharing that. And yeah, I tucked away, wrote down in my prayer journal. And I don't know if you ever had one of these moments where somebody shares something with you that just won't leave you. It, it just like buries in your heart. And all of a sudden, uh, that, that word, we realize, okay, this isn't just a random passing comment or suggestion. God's trying to get our attention here through one of our brothers here at Ethos. And so we just start praying. And it was as if we were sitting in this bumpy boat on the water, looking out, and we could see this faint silhouette of what might be Jesus. And so we just start asking, Lord, okay, okay, Lord, is that you? Is that you? And one of the things that happened over the last two years is as we've been praying this, God's been opening our eyes to things that have been happening all over the world. I don't know if you've traveled into different places, but one of the things that's interesting is right now God is, God is doing things in certain parts of the world that for whatever reason we're not seeing in the United States. I don't know why that is. I'm not going to speculate why that is. But, but, but God is clearly manifesting his presence and his power in some unique ways. People are coming to faith in ways that Americans can't even dream of right now. And I sense that the future of our church family is somehow tethered to what God is doing in the global South, amongst unreached people groups, amongst places where it's not very easy to be a follower of Jesus right now. And so over the last two years, with that comment from Amos, God began growing that sense in us, and Sydney and I started turning our eyes to the world and praying and asking God, hey, God, we will put everything on the table. Everything's on the table. We'll we'll, we'll go where you want us to go. We'll do what you want us to do. So, kind of in, in the midst of this kind of journey, God made it clear to us that uh, we were supposed to start praying for someone to walk with. So we just started praying for friends. God, would you give us a brother or a sister who's working amongst different places of the world that we could learn from, that we could walk from? And so I'll fast forward a little bit. Get to April of this year. I'm speaking at a conference of uh, this past year. I'm speaking at a conference down in Orlando, and. Uh, this guy sits down next to me. His name's Marathi Wanjao. He's from Nairobi, Kenya. And he sits down next to me. He and I never met each other before. And we find ourselves in the midst of this three-hour conversation. And I don't know if you've ever had this happen before, but it was like the Holy Spirit had just locked our hearts together. Like, oh, wow, who is this person? Wow. And he and I begin this friendship. A few months later, he calls me and says, "Hey, I'm coming back to the states. I want to come to Nashville and stay with your family." Can I do that? And and so, you know, I call Sydney, "Hey, this guy from Kenya wants to sleep on our couch. Is that cool?" And she's like, "Who is?" This? I'm like, "I don't really know him very well, but I think it'll be good." And so we pray about it and say, "Come on over." And in October of this past year, he comes to our house. And he stays stays with us for 4 days, and we get to the end of our time together, and uh, we're sitting at the kitchen table, and he says, hey, there are a few things that have been on my heart that I, I want to, I think I'm supposed to share with you and your wife. And one by one, he starts listing off the things she and I have been praying for about two years. It's like he's reading our mail. Sydney's kicking my shins under the table. I'm tough, but it was starting to hurt. And I mean, <laughs> she's just like wearing me out, like, are you hearing this? "Are you, I'm, Yeah, I'm hearing this. I'm hearing this. So he leaves, and we lay in bed that night, and we're praying, and Sydney looks at me. She said, we crossed... We, we crossed a threshold tonight, didn't we? Like, something changed. I'm like, it did. I don't, I don't know what it is, but something's different. There's no going back. We, we know that God is calling us out. He is, he is inviting us to trust him. We're hearing him on the water. We've been asking for permission, and we've heard his voice. Hey, come, come. A few weeks later, in the middle of December, just a month ago, Marathi calls back, and he says, hey, there's this global gathering of church planners that He and his wife, Carol, have been planting churches all over the world for 21 years says, All of our churches are coming together. We want you in Sydney to come teach and share and be with us. We want you to come learn from us. But more than that, we want your family to just come spend a month and to see what God is doing. Can you do it? And I said, Yeah, we'll, we'll be there. And then I hang up the phone and I'm like, Oh, crap. What have, what have we just done? Since I'm a Christian, Oh, shoot, what have we just done? Like, uh, I, I can't believe this. And then all of a sudden, we find ourselves on the edge of the boat. The Lord said, come, come, and Sydney and I get paralyzed with fear. I don't want to make this sexier than it is. I mean, we just start asking the question, okay, God, what does this look like? Jesus, do you know we're going to have to take our kids out of school for a month? Like, that, that that's not good. Do you know how much it costs to go to Kenya? Lord, Lord, do you know, like, what's at stake here? Lord, do you know that our youngest son isn't old enough to get the vaccinations to go to the place that we're going? Lord, do you know this? Jesus said, yeah, I know come on. Come on. Come. And there's this sense deep within Sydney and I that there is a friendship with Jesus that is only available for people that are willing to step on the water. That there is a place that our intellect can't carry us, and we want to go. So in 10 days, we're going to get on a plane with our three kids, and we're going to Kenya for a month. And to serve churches and to work with church planners, but more importantly, to open our eyes to all that God has for our church family here, and then and then we're coming back, Lord willing. I mean, we may die, and if we die, we'll see in heaven, and and uh, you guys will be fine. But hopefully, we'll come back in a month. And we'll open up our hearts wide and say, "Okay, God, what is it? What do you have?" And it may go well and it may go poorly, but I know that God will be in it. And I just want to ask you, if fear wasn't on the table, where's God calling you to go? Where's God calling you to step? You know, your story's not my story. My story's not your story. And the truth is, there is no step towards Jesus that is a small step. You know, for some of you, it's a step of vision and you just go, man, my eyes have not been set on the Lord. And for you, the bold step out of the boat for you this morning is to just to make the declaration that I'm going to get in the word of God. I'm going to be in the community of God. I'm going to open my heart to the spirit of God. For some of you, it is a step towards vision. For some of you, it's a step towards permission. You have sensed God is in this, but you don't know and you, you need the wisdom of a community every week in our house churches and up here uh, after the sermon and uh, upstairs during our prayer gathering, we pray over people just like you that have sensed the Lord up on the water but don't know what to do next. If you need to be prayed over this morning, for some of you, it's that step. You need the clarity of the Lord. For some of you, it's, it's, it's a step to make a move. And you have sensed God speaking, but you're terrified to, to make the step. You know, God speaks so clearly to me through my wife, Sydney. I remember several years ago, we'd been praying about something for a long time. And I remember I was just paralyzed. I knew the step of faith that we had to take. I didn't want to take it. And so I remember one night sitting down on the couch, I said, Sid, hey, can we just pray real quick about this decision? And in, in the way that only a wife can do, she looked at me, she said, I am not praying about that. She said, God's already given you the answer. She said, I'll pray that you'll get some courage. You know, <laughs> I'll pray that you take a step. I'm like, snap, I'm Like, wow. She's like, I'll pray that you'll do something about it. I'll pray that you quit bugging me, but I'm not going to pray for discernment. And Some of you, that's where you're at. I remember a couple of weeks ago, you know, Sydney and I had been praying for two years. We've been telling our friends and our house church and our community about what God had been putting on our heart. And then Marathi gives us the invitation and we come to our friend group and say, hey, hey, I think this is where we're called. What should we do? And we're praying and then I'll never forget Brandon Steele, who's one of our pastors here. He said, said, Dave, what do you need from me in this season? I said, I need you to be the guy who keeps kicking me in the back and knocking me out of the boat. Because I've got about a thousand reasons right now why God doesn't mean what he says he means. Sometimes you need a friend to help you move. Some, some of you may be in a place where you're under the water and you're drowning in failure and you need the Lord to lift you up. And this is, a, this is an okay place to fail because we believe failure is a sign of real faith walking. But for all of us, we get to worship. Here's a minute, the band will come up, and we're gonna stand, we're gonna sing, we're gonna take communion, we're gonna to pray together. And I, want you to, I want you to hear this. Every one of us will get to choose what kind of worshipers we'll be. We worship with dry clothes or wet clothes. I think both are acceptable, but one is only full of joy. <laughs> Let's get wet. Let's get in, Ethos. You were made to play. In 2016 is the year where we move from the stands to the field, where we get grass stains on the jersey, and we say, Lord, here we are. Let's go. So I invite you to stand. I want to pray over you as we get ready for communion. And if you feel comfortable, I invite you to grab the hand of the person next to you as I pray over us.